Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. If you've ever seriously tried to do test-driven development, it probably wasn't very long before you ran into something where testing became difficult due to an underlying dependency. Whether it's a database connection, accessing the file system, or dealing with the network, eventually your tests are going to have to deal with dependencies. In this episode, we're going to talk about several patterns that are used for dealing with complex and flaky dependencies so that unit tests can run quickly and reliably. But before we get started, Will, what's been testing you this week? Well, I actually did a test that was not quick, and I found that I had a bad memory stick (laughs) in the computer. So I'm running on half of my normal RAM, which is 16 gigs, so instead of 32, which is what I would prefer, until the new one comes in from Amazon. So it looks like that was causing a good-sized chunk of the blue screens that I was having. And so it was like $62 to replace it. So you know what that reminds me of? There's a, a Dilbert strip where Dilbert comes in and tells his manager, yeah, I haven't been feeling well. My allergies have been acting up. So like my IQ is at 50% capacity. And the manager says, uh, you know, the pointy hair manager goes, I'm smarter than an engineer. And Dilbert says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said 50% capacity. (laughs) 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 So there's, there's that. I'm really relieved that, you know, I was able to figure it out because hopefully that will cut the blue screens down. I still expect to have some because I'm on Windows and Mm -hmm. that seems to be part of the, the thing, but at least getting rid of this. The other thing I've been doing a lot of is I've been learning a lot of Amazon stuff. And so I'm going through some of the pre certification prep type stuff that's on Pluralsight, which has really helped me at work because we use Amazon for our infrastructure. And so now I actually know when they're talking about stuff, what in the world they're talking about, which is kind of helpful. That's really cool. Um, I went through some training recently because we're looking at the cloud. And uh, what was really funny is I got to day two of it with the lab and I'm like, oh, this is why all this sounded familiar. I did this at a conference about a year ago. (laughs) Yeah. Nice. Well, I mean, the the new version of the website is probably going to run in S3 because it's perfect for that, which that's the other thing I've been doing a lot of is working on the new website Uh, before this call, you know, before we start recording, basically every time before we get on, I walk beach through what I've done the previous week. So that there's Mm -hmm. kind of an accountability thing there because that, that makes me focus on, on actually having deliverables versus getting twisted into knots way down in the code somewhere. And it's really coming along. I'm not sure I'm going to hit the deadline I set for myself, but it is an arbitrary deadline that I uh, made up. So that's okay if I don't hit it, but uh, we'll see uh, where we get with that. So how are things with you? Well, uh, I actually got to see some live music recently. I went to go see my friend's band, Triple Threat, play the other night. Uh, They play mostly classic rock, 80s, 90s rock covers. Uh, And it was at a pool hall here in town. So that was kind of interesting. I was just glad there was no smoking inside. Actually, it was kind of neat when I got in there. There were they had some tables set up 
um, and then like the pool tables all along the walls and then in the back area, there are actually people with their kids sitting in there eating. So that was kind of cool. Like, you know, you, you go in and there's like security at the door with the wand and you have to take your pocket knife back to the car because you're not used to going into places like that anymore because it's and been then a you while. Have to take your other pocket knife back to the car because you forgot <laughs> to drop it for the first one. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. A few times. Yeah. Yeah. So and we won't talk about how many times that happens, but anyway. Yeah. So what was really interesting is I, I walk in and you know, they're kind of playing rap over the the speakers you know the kind of you go into a place it's like the music in the background it's it's hip-hop rap and i know my friends and you're like i'm looking at them and like two of them are also in a christian metal band and i'm just like you know i just know these guys are like it's it was interesting because like they're playing classic rock and some country stuff but the the people in there was such a diverse mix of people that they really enjoyed it. It was just kind of an interesting juxtaposition of the the rap when they weren't playing and then their classic rock. It was kind of cool. Now, I also got some really good news this week uh, related to school. So when you work on a master's degree, you have six years from the start of your degree to finish. And since I don't have a degree in computer science, I had to take leveling classes for the first two years. Um, Most people do it in one year, but I'm only doing one class a semester because that's what my job pays for. And since one of those leveling classes was an undergrad level class that I took at another school, my advisor and I, during my advising appointment, were talking. He's like, you know, I don't know if they count that toward your time in grad school. He's like, we ought to check and see if that, you know, if they count that semester or not. So we reached out to the graduate office and turns out they don't count any of my leveling classes. So that six-year marker started this semester when I took my first actual graduate level class. So the good news there is that means I don't have to double up. I still probably will just so that I'm not, you know, in school forever. But I don't have to double up on classes for a semester. And that's going to ultimately save me some money. So speaking of money, guys, you can take your financial confidence to the next level. Lucas Casades is a fee-only certified financial planner and financial coach serving tech professionals with his company, Level Up Financial Planning, virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Yeah, Level Up Financial Planning, just like us here at Complete Developer Podcast, Believe in the importance of having a real plan and taking action so that you can live your best life. Yeah, you know, a lot of times people think that they're too young or they don't have enough investments to actually work with a financial planner. But Level Up's got a unique pricing model that allows you to pay monthly and without requiring investment management. So you don't have to wait to feel confident about your financial decisions. Yeah. And guys, best of all, Lucas and, you know, his company Level Up Financial Planning is a fiduciary for his clients. Um, What that means is it requires him to act in his client's best interest. A lot of times you hear financial planners and they're kind of glorified salesmen. That's not Lucas at all. You know, he is not a salesman. You only play as long as you're getting value. 
And when you're no longer getting value, you stop paying. There are more resources available for you if you're interested in this at uh, levelupfinancialplanning.com. Unit tests are a great way to make sure that your code is more stable. Not only do they let you check your assumptions when you make changes, but they also tend to force you to structure your code in a way that keeps it cleaner. As you get more test coverage, this pays off, making it easier to do larger reorganization of your code with less fear of breaking it. The cleaner structure can also make it easier to diagnose problems in the code without doing a bunch of manual tracing. And finally, Unit tests can serve as a bit of living documentation for the expectations around your code, which can often make it easier for newer developers to pick up. This is really interesting because we're about to start a new project. And uh, I was talking with our business analyst and she was saying how she's about to go in and put in the requirements that she's been gathering. And she talked to our QA who's going to be on the project and they're working together. So she puts in the requirements and then the QA is going to come in and put in her test cases for it so that as a developer, I will come in and not only will I have requirements, I will have what QA is looking for too. Ah, nice. So I'll know kind of like, you know, and I was like, I think that is a great idea. Like I was so encouraging of that. (laughs) That's like test-driven development squared. Oh yeah, Uh, like (laughs) it's awesome. And I, I told her, I was like, that is that makes me so happy and excited for this project. The previous advantages that Beach talked about just a second ago are something that you're only going to really enjoy so long as your code doesn't interact with a file system, database, network, third-party app, physical hardware, uh, human beings, carrier pigeons, wireless networks, <laughs> you know, all kinds of unreliable things that tend to die. Each of these situations can introduce intermittent errors, limits the number of calls you can execute, interference from state changes, etc., and they're all going to slow down your tests. And as you get more tests, these disadvantages tend to pile up and they make it less likely that unit tests will be run because they become time-consuming and brittle. Fortunately, because we are talking about unit tests, it's expected that you are only testing how your code reacts to different conditions rather than testing underlying conditions that may not be reliable. This means that you can effectively bake a dependency in such a way that your tests only touch the code that you're trying to test. Moreover, if you do it right, this approach can also make your tests faster which makes your team more likely to run them in the first place. In this episode, we're going to discuss how to work with dependencies within unit tests and how to handle a variety of different situations that come up when you're trying to keep dependencies from messing up your test code. Uh, We're going to kind of talk a little bit uh, at first about unit tests versus other types of tests and then why dependencies make things more difficult. And then we're going to get a little further along and actually discuss stubs, fakes, uh, spies, mocks, etc., and when and when not to use them. Uh, so I guess to get started, uh, let's talk about unit tests versus other types of tests because a lot of people, for whatever reason, don't seem to really have this down as well as they pretend to. <laughs> I've seen some unit tests that were not <laughs> unit tests or their definition of a <laughs> unit was basically like this whole subsection of the app. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Or when the unit test, rather than using dependency injection, just like create like news up all the things instead of using. Yeah, it's just uh, I've seen that. I've seen where someone came in and changed the code and the unit test didn't work anymore. So they just commented out the unit test. Yeah, or delete it, which is even better. Or, or change it to where it's assert not true. That's my favorite. Yeah. Assert not true. <laughs> true. <laughs> you know, so like, assert that true is equal to true. Yep, it is. Okay, the test passed. Great. Thanks. <laughs> Tautological driven development is probably not the winning strategy here. So a, a unit test is supposed to test a single logical unit of code, not including its dependencies. It's intended to be fast, to only have its results changed based upon the way that the code itself works, and to make it easy to determine where and why a failure occurred. Yeah. Now, contrast this with integration tests. Yeah. Integration tests are intended to be a bit slower, more vulnerable to latency, and most importantly, they test how several pieces of code work together. So earlier, when I was talking about our QA, putting in the tests before I even start writing the code, most of the tests that she's going to have will be integration tests because she's seeing how all the pieces work together. Well, and that's the only way you could really do it that way, right? Because otherwise she's dictating design if she's trying to do your unit tests. Exactly. Yeah. So, And, you know, it may be harder to troubleshoot an integration test than a unit test. It will most definitely be slower. A performance test, on the other hand, tests how a system responds to load, how quickly a process can run, and how resources are used by a process. Uh, Generally, this is done over several components, so it's kind of an integration test type scenario. Um, Although sometimes you will see single unit performance benchmarking in the wild, um, but for the most part, it it is kind of integration testy. Is that a way to put it? (laughs) I like that. That's good. That works. So functional tests focus on the business requirements of the application being tested. And this is, these are a lot of what QA is doing. Right. You know, they're doing a lot of functional tests that can be integration tests. Uh, Rarely do I see QA doing a lot of performance level testing. Usually I get together with ops for that, especially when it's load testing and that kind of stuff. Yeah, because they freak out. (laughs) If you if you do a if you do a perf test or a load test when somebody isn't expecting it, you will hear from ops. Yeah, yeah. So I usually involve them whenever I'm doing anything like that. But functional tests pretty much only check the final output uh, rather than the intermediate steps. And it, it sort of depends, I guess. When I was talking about QA, it depends on what you're like, how you're doing your project management. Because if you're testing at the different levels when you're building something, then you're going to have QA doing integration and function testing, as well as the the last one we have here, end-to-end tests, uh, because they attempt to replicate the behavior of a user on a system and make sure that the whole system, like the longer workflows, work properly. Right. And you'll get a lot of UI automation on that. A lot of times what you do there is you just go, hey, can somebody sign on to the app and make an order and go all the way through without something breaking? And it is an integration test, but it's an integration test with user like browser flakiness and all the crap that comes with that. Oh, yeah. This is if you do 
user acceptance testing, we do because most of our users are internal. So you get you, this is where UAT is a big thing because they're they're working through their workflow. You know, not just testing the business requirements, but they're like, all right, how does this work with my processes and the way that I do my day to day operations? And does this whole process work for me? So speaking of things working for you or not, um, let's talk a little <laughs> bit about why dependencies make testing difficult. The first thing is, is that they introduce latency most of the time. If you make a call to a real dependency, it's going to slow down your unit tests, sometimes drastically, like especially if you're you know, calling some crappy server that's halfway around the planet for some reason, because you've got to talk to it for the normal business operations. You don't want to do that in your test because that that's going to slow it down a lot. Yeah, dependencies introduce breaking changes that basically aren't relevant to your tests. They may change uh, under the hood, causing your test to fail, even if the actual code being tested didn't cause the issue. You know, this could be your testing code that calls a database and the connection to the database is down or the database password has expired. I've actually literally had that problem in a unit test. Or there's no disk space on the database because somebody else is running a load test and you don't know that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And you'll you'll note the remarkably dialed in description that I just gave there. (laughs) (laughs) Not that that's ever happened to Will. Yeah. Um, It's not not my favorite situation because I spent hours trying to figure out what I did. And I shouldn't have been doing that in a unit test, but it was, I was trying to prove something would work mm-hmm. and not realizing that, you know, they were putting a load test on the system at the same time. And somebody put like 160 million rows in this table that should have only had a few thousand. Yeah. And it was just, it was an absolute donkey. <laughs> you, know, just, you get a lunch and you come back and the test is still running and you're like, what did I do? Do I have a, non-terminating loop or something? You know, yeah, it was, it was awful. Because <laughs> yeah. you know, my first thing is to think that I screwed up. And that's one of the things that a dependency will do to you is you don't know that you're the one that screwed up because it there's other people now in the mix. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing is they introduce intermittent errors in the code. So if the dependency itself has some kind of limits or worse, if it deals with hardware, it could periodically just flake out, as Will puts it. Yeah. yeah. And this, this could be due to anything from temporary network outages to a drive being full. Yeah, or a service limit being reached. So you're calling some yeah. API and they limit you know, how much you can call and you just saturated that and now you got cut off. It's like, wait, well, mm-hmm. is your code working or not? Well, you don't know. Yeah. Dependencies themselves also tend to have dependencies because, you know, it's, <laughs> it's objects all the way down. It's not turtles, it's objects. Mm-hmm. And some of those dependencies can be kind of hard to discern. So, for instance, you may be calling some external component that deals with, you know, a JSON payload that you send at it. And that thing is using a JSON parser, but it recently changed. Well, you don't need to know that for your test, but it could become relevant and break your test. And that's also very specific for a reason. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you do have to make sure that these things work, but it's really wasteful to do so when you're trying to iterate on your own code and get it right. 
And the other thing is a lot of times you can't test dependencies from your development machine cleanly. Um, this happens a lot when you're using like third-party services uh, like payment processors, you know, where they have uh, security restrictions around them. And, you know, they want to call back into the server that called them and you don't want to expose your main developer machine to the open internet for that to happen because that's a bad idea, right? So you, you, you can't make that call. So next we're going to talk about why dependency injection and polymorphism matters. If you're using dependency injection, and this is very interesting because I was just explaining what that is to, to someone the other day, uh, you request an instance of an object from a container that knows how to build it. Uh, this keeps you from making your code overly coupled to the types that it uses um, rather than just their interface contracts. Uh, so basically what this does is you're, you're building something like, say, a class, and that class relies on service XYZ. Well, when you construct your class, you say, hey, I need service XYZ. So whoever constructs your class passes in service XYZ. Or if you're using a DI framework, then that handles it. And like, I love .NET Core because you can specify very easily at what level of persistence you want your dependencies. So you can say, hey, I want it to, I want a new one every time a call comes in. Or I want, you know, a new one built every time the, like, this class gets called, you know? And so it's, it's nice. I, I like, like, there's, there's more than just those two, but like, those are good examples. Yeah. And, you know, the, polymorphic part of it also matters here too, right? Because it allows you to swap out a different implementation of the same interface contract in different situations. Now, this mm -hmm. could be something, if you're doing something crazy, like I want to switch out my database provider, you could theoretically do that. I don't know a whole lot of people that have to do that, but you know that's a thing. But you could also say, hey, I want to, instead of using this service that is the concrete implementation. I just want one that, that fakes out the data so that I can test against it and make sure that my logic is good in these different scenarios. So a real-life example of this um, that's not a mock for testing is I was building something to, to interact with a third-party service that did not work with .NET Core. And, but they were going to come out with a newer version that did. So I had, I basically built it where it like with dependency injection and had a .NET framework class that would work with it. It was, it was complicated. It was weird, man. But basically I built that so that it could be replaced. Right. And it, it was nice because you don't have to change anything else in the code because everything else is just relying on the interface. Right. And you're just using that as an adapter. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you take these two techniques and you put them together, you can more easily isolate the code under test without your tests having to deal with any complexity due to the dependencies of your code. Except for, you know, obviously faking up those dependencies that are right under the class. The other thing this does for you is it can make it a lot easier to create unlikely or difficult scenarios that your dependencies may create in the wild in a way that is predictable. 
So, um, for instance, if you have a service outage or you hit a call limit on some API, you know, you don't want to, you know, unplug your network cable to test this every time, right? You just want the exception so that you can make it work without, you know, a bunch of manual effort. And so you can use this technique to make something that creates that scenario without a whole lot of trouble, essentially. Yeah. Um, that can be a lot of fun writing those tests if you enjoy like that depth of thought. Cause I do. And you know, I know not everyone likes writing unit tests. It's not always my favorite thing to do, but doing that kind of that level thinking is a lot of fun. Yeah. The only thing that's, um, I guess I would say that is, is a little bit difficult. Um, usually what happens is people don't think about all the things that can go wrong. And so once they get something that massively blows up, then they go back and they write a unit test that creates that scenario and they work on the fix and then they get that out and that's in the test. Um, so it's more of an evolutionary process instead of a developer creation process, as it were. Now, we're going to start talking about test doubles here in a minute. Um, and I kind of want to lay a little bit of groundwork here for how we're going to do that. What we're going to do is we're going to say that we have a user repository and we're making tests for it. I mean, you know, it's going to allow searching, filtering, sorting, editing, updating, deleting, blah, 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 all the crap around a user. And the real thing under the hood would use a database, but we're trying to make test doubles to avoid this. So it would be we're testing a class that's consuming the user repository effectively. And so we need to spoof that thing so that the calling class can work with it and have a reasonable test bench that is uh, predictable. In a real world situation, you know, you end up probably starting with a stub, which we'll explain in a minute, and then you continue to add complexity only when it serves the purposes of the test. Uh, these test doubles that we're about to describe basically are a continuum of increasing complexity as you get uh, all the way to the end. Yeah. So getting started, we're going to talk about stubs. Now, these are extremely lightweight. They return a predefined output regardless of what the input is. Like, uh, I like this. Now, we're, we're going to talk about mocks in a little bit, but uh, like, I, I use this in my mocks, but uh, I, I like to do this where it's like, all right, you create this, you send in like, any input or you can, you know, uh, with some of them, you can specify like any integer input return this, you know? Yeah. And we're going to kind of go through that as we go through the, the types. Like a stub is super duper lightweight. And so you would create, uh, you know, an I, uh, an implementation of I user repository. When they call get all users, here's your four users. It doesn't matter what you pass in, what filter constraints, here's your four users. It gives you that back. Every single time. And this is usually, um, you know, this is sufficient for a lot of test scenarios, right? Because I just need some data out of this thing and I need it to be able to return it so that the caller can can do its thing and, and, and actually prove that my code that I'm actually trying to test works. Okay, okay. I, I see. I see where you're going with this now. Sorry. Yeah. Because I, I combine, I don't think of breaking these. And I don't either. Yeah. And and that's and that's why I brought this up because I actually had a conversation with somebody that that didn't know the difference. And I'm like, well, you know, it's like saying there's a difference between Europe and Asia. Yes, there's a 
difference, but <laughs> you keep going east in Europe, eventually you're in Asia. And yes, there's theoretically a dividing line, but it gets more Asian the further east you go. <laughs> you know, it's it's a continuum. And so, yeah, when they talk about stubs, this is what they're saying. It's like, hey, this is just a thing that returns, you know, something nice and easy, quick test. You can spin it up real quick. It, there's no complexity and there's no if statements or, you know, different logic in the mix. Okay. Okay. I understand because I'm doing some, some training pair programming with, uh, with our UI lead and he's teaching me some of like the Angular, whatever, like, like the newer Angular stuff, the stuff since two. Because uh, oh, there's yeah. yeah, there's a bit of that, um, yeah. <laughs> and so like we're like he was showing me how they mock up API calls, and there's like the stuff we've been doing is we're only two sessions into it because we started off with me teaching him the .NET side, so like we're only two sessions in, so we we did this, and it's it's basically what we're sending back. It's basically a stub. You call in and you get this back. It, so like I I follow. That uh, makes yeah. sense. All right. And then when you have to go the next level, right, you'll probably go to like using a fake. Again, assuming that you're only adding complexity as you need it, mm-hmm. which is kind of the way we typically do this to start. And then after a while, we're like, yeah, I'm just going to mock bomb it because <laughs> you, know? mm-hmm. you, you end up having to need it anyway. A fake is like a stub, but it can change behavior based on input. So for instance, um, you know, it, it basically can mimic all the possible behaviors based on input. And a good example for this for a user repository would include uh, several different static sets of users that are returned under different filter criteria. Okay. So you go, I want the admin users, and it gives you four admin users. I want the regular users, and it gives you four regular users. And it knows the difference. It's still static sets, but now you've introduced a little bit of a toggle in there. Okay. Now, because you're not using a real implementation, this is a good place to have certain incoming data values that trigger a certain type of result. Uh, For instance, you could say, hey, you know, if I send in a request for a user ID and that user ID is divisible by 10, that returns an administrative user while others just return regular users. And if you have that convention in your code, you can do that. Now, I don't like that approach because that's a magic number. Yeah. And that's not any better in a unit test, in my opinion, than it is in real code because a unit test is real code still. But that's a thing you can do and it will work for initial early scenarios while you're building stuff out. You just don't keep it that way. So a spy, basically an advanced version of a fake, which is stateful. You guys noticing a pattern here? <laughs> yeah, that's the idea. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're going to get to what I'm used to. But we're gonna we're gonna keep increasing the complexity here. So with the spy, this can be used for things such as retry logic or for determining that a method was called multiple times. Yeah. So a good example of this would be um, like again with the user repository, because we're beating that to death, where the repository returns a static set of items, but you know, it's got another method on there that removes an item from that set if you delete it in order to mimic real behavior so that a caller goes, okay, I did delete it. And for some reason pulls it back another list and doesn't get the same one again and have something weird happen. So when you start getting into those kind of stateful dependencies, now you start injecting spies in there. Mm -hmm. The other neat thing about a spy is because it's stateful, you can also track the frequency of calls to the code under test 
And this is really handy if a particular call is expensive in some way. You know, like it's it's using some service where you get a click charge, you know, every time you call out to it, right? You're calling a, I don't know, you're calling an AWS Lambda, right? Under the hood. And yeah, the, the charge is absolutely minuscule, but you're noticing that your app is making a lot more calls than you think it should. And you've got some tests in place. You could write assertions that say, hey, this thing should only call this thing once. And if it calls it twice, it'll blow up and you now know where the problem is. And so you can use it in those kind of scenarios as sort of a backward performance test or a reverse load test. Oh, that's type. interesting. I hadn't thought about doing that. I like that idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've right. had to deal with that more than once. Yeah. So the last level, the the top level here is what I'm used to dealing the with. The ultimate. The, the ultimate, yes. It's final level four. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the, the final evolution of this Pokemon <laughs> is the mock. And this is what I'm used to dealing with, which is which is why I was like, you know, all right, I, I see where you're going with this now. But uh, just like a spy, but it's more flexible. You know, behavior can be changed dynamically based on the scenarios. This gives full control over the behavior of the mocked objects, uh, including objects that the mock returns. So it's, and this is what I've done where you can literally say, Especially if you have like overloaded functions, you know, right. like you can say, hey, for this function, if you pass in an integer to it, do this. If you pass in a string to it, do this. And you can say a specific integer or any integer or, you know, and you can like specify what you want to do. Usually when I'm writing my tests, I'll write my mocks for gen- like just generic stuff like, all right. You know, I'll mock out an interface and I'll be like, all right, this takes in an integer because it's like, it's a get by ID kind of thing. And it's like, all right, here's the ID. But then if I need to say, all right, if I need a specific kind of test, then I can go and add that more specific thing to it. Yeah. The other fun thing with mocks, um, and this is where I get to use them a lot, is where you have. I don't necessarily love fluent interfaces, and this is why, is where you have something where the result of a particular call is dependent on the previous call mm-hmm. because the object is stateful in a weird way under the hood where the sequence of calls matters. And so this is where you start using a mock because you've got to be able to do state tracking and you got to be able to say, okay, when they call this with these parameters and this with these parameters and they call this other thing with this other parameter, here's the result. Yeah. And, and so that that's where you start getting into using mocks and fluent interfaces, in my opinion, are some of the worst offenders for this. Mm-hmm. The logic can get, um, you know, kind of complex. Uh, so, for instance, like, you know, with the user repository we were talking about earlier, you might use a mock when you want a certain user's uh, set of user IDs to return different kinds of users users in particular states. So, for instance, their accounts disabled, you know, their band is a spammer you know, whatever, um, or different kinds of errors. So you send a user in with this ID, it throws an error going, hey, I didn't find this. And the logic for these gets very complex very quickly. And so you probably don't want to use a mock right off the bat, even though Beej and I probably do every single time. Um, Because you can implement all the other stuff first. So you use a mocking framework and you get a mock, but you know, really what a spy or a fake or a stub is, is a lobotomized mock. 
Yeah. And so you start there and then you go, okay, we're going to make Frankenstein a little smarter tomorrow so that we can test this other scenario. Um, and especially when you get to where you're having to deal with calls in a certain order, these are really, really helpful. So I, I guess now let's actually talk about when you would use these different types of test doubles because you're going to want to use the simplest one you can get away with because otherwise you're fighting with your unit testing framework probably more than you want to. All right. So before we get into that, though, let's talk about when not to use them. Okay. Um, I, I like that idea. Let's go with it. Um, especially <laughs> since it's on the outline that way and I just was looking at the wrong part of the screen. Um, <laughs> we'll just leave that in because that, you know, some people need to see behind the curtain on occasion. So, yeah, you don't always want to use the most complex thing. Mm-hmm. Tests do become more complex and brittle the more complex the testing code gets because it starts getting tied to the implementation. Uh, the tests oh, yeah. also get harder to read, frankly. Yeah, like when I have to be complex, like like I said, I start with the the simplest way first. And if I don't have to use mocks, I don't. Or if I don't need to mock something, I don't until like I don't do it until I need it because you know you're looking at your your test class and I try to divide stuff up so it's it, it makes sense when you're looking at test classes but like you may be you know a hundred lines down reading a specific unit test and you're like all right well it's calling this and passing this in what's it supposed like what is it gonna return that's then gonna be used in this other place? And you have to scroll back up to the top and look at your mock and go, all right, what what is that mock returning? Oh yeah, that I it 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 can get really complex. And so you want to understand, like, not just for other developers, but think about, and this is what I do because you know, I'm a little bit narcissistic, just to just a wee bit. I, I try to think, all right. What's it going to be like for me six months from now when somebody wants to add a feature and I have to update my tests? Yeah. And your tests are tightly coupled to an implementation that's about to undergo major changes because you mocked the daylights out of everything. Yeah. And I've been there, done that, did it last week. Not (laughs) not happy times. Yeah. Yeah. So the dependency between the you know, the test and the code under test is something I think a lot of people don't think about enough when they're testing, but that's still code you have to maintain. And the other thing is when tests get complex enough, they may not give really good, useful diagnostic criteria as far as what failed. You'll get some crap like, oh, null reference exception. Okay, where'd that come from? It, it's in here. It's in the mock wire up code. Good luck. You know, because you'll you'll see that kind of stuff because you've made it complex to a degree that maybe it doesn't deserve to be, mm-hmm. um, versus getting a clean error because you didn't over overly complexify everything. If that's a word, is complexify a word? It is now. <laughs> You're turning it into one. Make yeah. it, you know, yeah. Make it a word. Make it a word. Oh, this should be a hashtag. Hashtag. Make it a word. Hey, if yeah. the if the Potterheads could get Muggle. Made into a word you can get complexify. Potterheads. That sounds like it ought to be a type of turtle. Um, <laughs> like, like a type of know. turtle that lives in Oregon, actually. <laughs> I, I think I've heard that term before, but I can't be for sure. I mean, I like Harry Potter too, so I can't really say too much, but you know. 
<laughs> All right, guys. So now that we've talked about why not to use these, let's talk about some use cases for each one. Yeah. So for a stub, you're starting out, you're testing the happy path, and you just want to get some semi-realistic data back to see that the basics are covered. Yeah. yeah in other words, so, my app doesn't blow up when I give it three users because it turns out that I'm asking for a column that doesn't exist. So with um, with what I was doing today in my pair programming, it was, hey, here's three, literally three objects that you know, are, are going to be, are in this format that's going to come back. Let's see if we can get this drop down to work. And we had, we had some fun with dot map and dot filter, but you know, we got it a little, little type script. There's a couple of things I'm like, so I'm talking to, uh, cause it's been a while. Like it's, oh my goodness, it's probably been over a year or more since I've done any JavaScript, real JavaScript coding. And so I said to my uh, my lead who who was uh, doing this with me, I was like, "So here's what I would do in C sharp. I don't know how to do that in JavaScript. I know I used to know, but it's been a while. And uh, if you give me a minute, I can Google it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know, like the the whole stub thing. I mean, this is the thing you use when you start out just because you're trying to test assumptions and get broad swaths of the code working. Because usually what happens is, is, you know, the stub handles a whole bunch of stuff and then you go, okay, I need to expand it and do a fake, but I'm not really using the fake for all the things. Yeah. And then the stuff that you use a spy for is even smaller subset. And then the stuff you use a mock for is an even smaller subset. And then the stuff that you use a mock for that you actually like using a mock for is probably a really tiny subset. Um, <laughs> just my personal opinion. So like the next thing you would do is like a fake. You know, so rather than just the happy path, now you need to test a few simple scenarios that require variation in output based on input. So you went from get all users to uh, you know, get users by organization. And you pass in an org ID. And you want those to be different. Because otherwise, stuff will do weird things. That's when you've now moved up to using a fake. So with a spy, you've started testing things that can change state. And you need to be able to assert that certain methods were called and how often they were called. This is something that when Will mentioned that, I was like, ooh, like I'm, I'm thinking in my head, I could use that because <laughs> I hadn't yeah. thought about testing testing for how often certain things were called but i have some some code that i'm like that could be really useful yeah it's really handy especially telling the difference between 0 and 1 mm-hmm. or between 1 and anything greater than 1 right cuz you probably don't care that it's you know called 3 times but you you really want to know that it is called or it isn't called yeah or that it's or that it's called more than once so it's like you know you know it's called but it should only be called once, not five times. Right. And if you start seeing that behavior, you may need to put tests in to catch that. This is also good when you're actually starting to delete stuff or edit stuff because now you you have state under the hood somewhere that you know is being tracked and you can you can actually deal with that. And then you step up to a mock when you start testing complex scenarios that involve stuff like error states, you know, complex workflows or 
really annoying uh, coding interface designs, like <clears throat> fluent interfaces, which has been the <laughs> yeah, bane. We of my all know Will. Lately. Will does not like fluent. Well, okay, I like writing them, but I hate hate testing them. <laughs> um, because it's it's always just oh you got this sequence of calls and you know it, it's it's really painful like we're doing a lot of query builder type stuff yeah. um, so you know kind of like you have well like within Hibernate or with Link you know it's like hey I'm doing a query and I'm doing where this and this and da 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 and all those are function calls and I got to call them in a certain order or it changes output you know, that's really nice when you're writing code. It makes it clean. And you can tell what's going on. But when you have to test that crap, holy cow, it's like so much more work. Um, and, and so I'm not a huge fan of that. I've not found a good way to make this non-painful, I guess, is where I'm going with that. Yeah, that um, makes sense. Or when you have callbacks. Callbacks are another case where you can very quickly, especially when you get them nested, uh, unit testing those, sometimes not a whole lot of fun. I've never had that problem before. Or async <laughs> and callbacks. <laughs> I don't even want to think about that. Like or I, you're passing an expression async. tree. <laughs> and do oh, no, I've done that. Yes. Yeah, but test that. I have. Yeah. It's not fun. I know. No. Yeah. Uh, I've just yeah. I've just not done the the async and callbacks at the same time. I've done async callbacks with expression trees involved that used a visitor pattern to go through the expression tree to work out what it was doing because of building, you build your own data access framework and you go a lot of places other people don't go and that you wish you'd never knew existed. <clears throat> yeah. Will keep continues to talk because I'm just looking at him like he's insane. Yeah, it was, it was totally <laughs> insane. Um, I mean, I got through it and I, you know, my yeah. code worked and it passed the tests and I checked it in and it was very, shortly before I resigned from that position. <laughs> so it's not my problem anymore. So um, there are some things that you might want to avoid when you're doing this um, because sometimes you can avoid doing a test double for various reasons and you should. For instance, when you can't create a test double for a dependency due to the way that it's implemented. Um, this is really common in .NET and in Java, especially, um, where you have like sealed types or cases where dependency injection isn't being used or can't be used. So anything where you're passing pointers around can be very interesting. Uh, anything with a sealed type, anything where uh, you're you're passing like a struct, and the struct has to have certain stuff in it that you don't understand because there's other, you know, it's, it's a pass through of that struct to some other piece of the system that you didn't write or that potentially you have no access to. Those can get really, really ugly. And it's, it's very hard to test double your way out of this. Like you can, you can do it with sealed classes sometimes with some shenanigans. So you basically make a class that, that has the same interface and takes the sealed type or, or like wraps the seal type and then you pass that class around with the seal type in it and you're just act, you know basically basically making a proxy around it and you can do stuff like that but it's it's not a whole lot of fun you might also want to avoid this if you're doing something other than a unit test if you're not trying to isolate the code under test then you probably don't need a test double because the point of that is to isolate the code under test 
So if you're doing a um, you know end-to-end test, for instance, or an integration test or something like that, you might not want to do this um, because it will make your test harder to maintain in that context. Yeah. The interface you're working with is basically syntax magic over the top of the real dependency. You know, a fluent interface sitting over DB set in Entity Framework, for instance. Um, I don't use EF, so I'm... Well, in Hibernate, you have a context, right? And you've got... Um, I'm trying to remember, like you have types hanging off of it um, that you can join and you can do all kinds of stuff with. There's some kind of entity that's like that, and I forget what it's called. You know, where you're doing the the in Hibernate query language, like the HQL, over those types. Of course, you know, you have like a link interface now. We didn't when, back in the day, but, you know, you, yeah, you've I got a link. You got a link, link interface in over something, right? Instead of yeah. mocking that link interface, what you do is you mock the type that that link interface is working on, where it return, you know, where it's got a, a data set under it, but you're not screwing around with doing full-on mocking of the link side of it. You just mock the data under the hood. Fair enough. I follow what you're saying. Right, because that, like, that is so much less painful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, syntax magic, there's a lot of stuff that makes things easier for programmers when they're writing business code that makes it extremely hard to test mm-hmm. because it's made to look nice for programmers not to make things nice for testing. And so you, you got to think about is it worth actually really testing this thing? Like if I'm testing my fluent interface and that's really what I'm trying to test, then sure, you know, do whatever I got, I've got to do there. But if I'm just, you know, hey, this thing consumes that fluent interface, maybe I need to go down a level and and mock what's under the hood and let the fluent interface be its thing where I don't have to touch it. Yeah. So guys, managing dependencies in unit tests is something... You pick up over time. Uh, like most other code, your approach to dependencies in a unit test scenario should start with something simple and then only add complexity when it's valuable and necessary. You don't want to add complexity for complexity's sake here. You do it when it's needed and when you have a good reason and you're getting value out of that. So we want to give a thank you and a shout out to Lucas from Level Up Financial Planning for sponsoring this week's episodes. Lucas's sponsorship is making this podcast possible um, and it's helping us achieve our goals and you know he can help you achieve your financial goals. So check him out. Beej, what do you have for us uh, for Tricks of the Trade? So guys, I got myself in a little trouble recently and it's it's funny because it was the same thing in multiple situations, like in multiple places. So it wasn't like all at work or all in my personal life. It was like a little bit like it was in several different places and it was all within the matter of a couple of weeks. And it just really like, it was kind of a slap in the face. It was almost like, was it one of my friends used to call it a clue by four? Uh-huh. <laughs> just like hitting you upside the head going, hey, pay attention to this. And so l- let me give you a, an example of what happened. I, you know, I'm a leader in a lot of different areas, both at work and in areas in my personal life. And, you know, I'm sort of like the, not like the top leader, but I'm like, you know, I'm over a few things. I went up to someone and it, like I said, this happened not just one place. 
And my intent was to say, hey, you're doing such a great job where you are. Let's get together and start working on getting you ready to move up to the next level. But the way it came out was, hey, you're not very good at this, so I'm going to help you get better at it. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I've been there where you're like, no, I'm trying to help. I'm not. Yeah. 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 And the the problem was it wasn't um, like the response wasn't an immediate thing. It was like a day later. And one of them was like a few days later where the person came up to me in a completely different setting and was like, I don't understand because like the person over you, like your boss said, I was doing really well at this and you're saying I'm not doing well at this and I don't understand who, like who to listen to. And I'm like, oh, like at first I thought the person was joking and it took me a moment to realize they were being serious. And I'm like, oh, oh my goodness. I am so sorry. I was trying to tell you that you are doing such a good job that you're ready to move to the next level. And I was offering to help you train to move to the next level. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So actually a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Guys, what I'm getting at here is to be watchful about how you say things to people. Like you may mean one thing, but it could be interpreted as something completely different. And this is, oh my goodness, this is especially true in today's world of remote work where most communication is some form of text like email, Slack, text, Teams, whatever you're using. And like intonation and emphasis are completely lost. You know, sarcasm is definitely not your friend here. Thankfully, we don't ever do that. No, never. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting that you bring this up because, like, I was looking at, like, some of the conversations we've had over the last two weeks. Yeah, I was mm-hmm. scrolling through it as you're saying that. And, like, if somebody else saw that, they would be like, man, these guys are just really jerks to each other. Because, you know, we've got that rapport. We understand the other one. Yeah. Like, you know, you could say something that kind of comes off as a little bit snappy to me, and I don't take it as snappy. Oh, yeah, because I but, didn't intend it that way at all, yeah. and you know that. Yeah, and I'll occasionally look at it and go, well, he might have a stomachache today, <laughs> which is the other thing I, like I've noticed is like because you'll use more sarcasm when your stomach hurts because I've been around you long enough, and I don't know why that is, but that is something I've noticed. And so I'm like, okay, <laughs> I know what's going on. We're good. Well, you know, it, it, it's funny because, you know, the the other side of this is – not to be easily offended. I remember a conversation I had with our friend Jason who who passed away. He was telling me that uh, his grandmother asked him one time, she's like, why do you like hanging out with those guys? Referring to me specifically, but like our group of friends. It's always like, you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like, why do you like hanging out with those guys? They're so mean and rude to you. And he's like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, like he did this and said this. And Jason's like, they treat me like I'm normal. Well, Jason like, was like, that was hilarious. What are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but like to, to his grandmother, he's like, everyone treats me like I'm fragile, but these guys treat me like I'm just one of them. Yeah. And 
you know, he didn't take offense at it. Other people people were kind of taking offense for him. Yeah. But he didn't because he understood that it wasn't meant out of rudeness. It was meant out of like joking, sarcastic friendship. But on the other side of that, when it's not like when you don't have that rapport, like Will and I have, or like Will and I had with Jason, you you have to kind of watch what you say. Like even when it's like on a call or in person and you've got the ability to adjust your tone and your emphasis, because for me, it was like in-person conversation where this happened. And the thing is, what I didn't realize is in both situations, someone else had said something to the person beforehand that changed the meaning of what I was saying. So really, instead of them, um, instead of them being a fake, they were more of a spy because they were stateful and you didn't know it. It's <laughs> bringing that back into the episode. Yeah, yeah. Gr- great way to to like <laughs> roll that back into the episode. But yeah, <laughs> so they didn't know how to handle very much so. Yeah, <laughs> as it were. Very, very much so. So guys, just just be wary of that. And like sometimes it's in my case, it was I was literally just trying trying to compliment someone and say, hey, you're ready to move forward. Let's let's work on that. Or in another case, I was trying to say, hey, you did a great job handling this difficult situation. And I didn't realize what had been said before made the way I said it come across as rude when I didn't mean for it to be. And so what what I'm getting at is one kind of watch the way you say things, but also if that happens, understand that, you know, it there's a lot going on that is one out of your control, but also that you can't know ahead of time. So if you find yourself in that situation, what I ended up, what I did was I just straight up apologized to the person. I'm like, I am sorry that that's on me. I didn't realize that, you know, I was coming across that way. Here's what I meant and move forward from there. Like apologize for it, move forward and forget it. Um, The only reason I even bring it up now is to use it as an example to help you guys. And that's pretty much all I got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.